The second lesson this morning comes to us from the epistle to the Philippians. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi and with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one might argue that the first Reformation happened not in the 16th century, but in the first century. Right here in the text that we are reading here this morning. Now, of course, it wasn't called a Reformation in the way that we think about it. It was called the beginning of a new faith. The people called Christians, that's the way that they were known in some areas, and then in other places they didn't have that name. They were known as people of the way. So they carried these different sort of terms depending on where they were. These, so these Christians or these people of the way, they were on the loose, one might say, traveling all over the Roman Empire to share this message that they have received, one that they believed that was good, one that they believed that others needed to hear. The good news, as it was called, we translate that the gospel, but it just means good news, good message. And when I say that this was perhaps the first Reformation, I'm not saying that this is the Reformation of the synagogue. Though it was on some level because many of the places where these folks traveled to were early synagogues. But more than that, and as we see this unfold throughout the epistle to the Philippians, we'll start to see what this first Reformation was all about. Because what I'm starting to see is that it was a Reformation of how human beings realigned themselves in a way that was bigger than their tribes, in a way that was bigger than their ethnicities, and in a way that was bigger than their cultures. 
And we get first glimpses of this in the book of Acts when Paul is taken in into the house of Ananias. And some of you know this story. And, Paul, and this man looks at Paul with the words, and he says this with a greeting. He says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And this greeting was transformative in the first century. Because as you know, these two folks had been enemies up until this point, and this then becomes the turning point where they start to see themselves realigned as human beings. And as this Reformation begins to take shape across the Roman Empire, it does slowly but surely. It happens in little groups that are not always in agreement, that don't always see the same message the same way, and they travel into towns and cities and they share this message of Jesus with anybody who will listen. And they start to develop this new lexicon that happens within the first century and it starts to go like this, Jew or Greek, they will say. Often those were polarizing categories, but now they're put together in the same phrase, slave or free, they will say. Often again, separate categories set to different places within culture and then they're put together within the same phrase, male or female, they'll start to say. Again, separate categories set off on totally different trajectories of what it means to be human. And the church will begin to put these folks in the same place and realign them and rediscover what it means to be human. And as they go throughout the towns, one of the towns that they will head into is a town called Philippi. And that's where we're going to be turning our attention for the next 10 weeks. The town of Philippi. It's set in current day Macedonia, and Macedonia, if you're wondering, if you can imagine the country of Greece, and then the portion of Greece that stretches out along the eastern coast towards Turkey, but north of that, that is the area of Macedonia. That's where Philippi was located. And it was a hub of Roman activity. It became a place where a large majority of Roman colonists were stationed and it was placed right between the east, east and the west. And the Romans knew that this was going to be an important location. And so two centuries before, in the second century of BC, they built a large road spanning 746 miles that would cross through the town of Philippi because it was one of those places that was a crossroads. You had to go through it if you wanted to head into some of the places into the east where people enjoyed the trade and the different fruits that came from that part of the world. And also, right, sort of tucked in the back hills of Philippi were mines. And so you can imagine that not only was this a place that had Roman colonists and folks who were traveling along the trade route, but this was also a place of industry that had workers, people who were maybe forced, maybe paid, to head into those mines to gather the treasure therein. And so Philippi had a great deal of culture and industry that was going on in and around this city. And so it was on this town that Paul made more than one of his travels. He loved this town. 
And you can see that in the story of Acts, and you can also see it in the letter that we're going to be reading over this next season. He loved this church. If you turn to Acts 16 later um, today, you can open it now, but you don't have to, uh, you'll see the actual very beginning of the story of this church. And you'll see that this church was started not with the interest and conversation between the apostles and a man, but the interest and the conversation between the apostles and a woman. It was through the conversation with Lydia, who was then located in this part of the world, that this church then gets its beginning. So already, from its very inception, this is a church, a congregation, a gathering of people, however it is that you want to use that term, the word church, in the New Testament just means gathering. That's all it means. And so already from its very inception, this church in Philippi, this gathering of people, is a gathering of people that are reforming. They're already reforming. And so as Paul writes these words that we first heard to his beloved community in Philippi, his words continue to evoke these new ideas and these new alignments that are already happening in the world and that perhaps folks in this community had already understood. And there are many ideas that Paul gets at in this letter, but I want us to notice one of them today. And it's a word that you might be familiar with, And if so, it's a word that we're going to rediscover. It's a word called koinonia. Koinonia, it's a Greek word. It's a wonderful word. And koinonia is a word that was used not just within the church. As a matter of fact, when you start looking at first century words, none of them are sacred words because the church didn't yet exist. So nothing had been termed sacred. So when Paul is trying to get at some of these ideas, he doesn't turn to the church. There is no church for him to turn to. He turns where? He turns to the legal sphere. Because that's the lexicon of the first century Greek reader. He turns to the civil world. And he finds a word called koinonia. And it's a word that means partnership. Okay, Not just the sharing of two ideas, but actually coming together for a common purpose and engaging in the world on behalf of it. It is a a word that is used for small business owners in the first century. If you were engaged in koinonia with another person, it meant that you shared in a business together. That's what that word meant. And so Paul co-ops this word and he uses it for the sharing of the gospel. So he's trying to help them unpack that the same sort of partnership that you would engage in around a small business, this is what you're doing when you engage in partnership around the gospel. And then Paul does one of his natural gifted things that we see him do in all of the letters that he writes. He coins a new phrase. And he does this later in verse 7, and you might have that translated, um, all of you share. I think that's the way that it comes across in your translation. But what Paul is doing is taking that word koinonia, and he's adding a prefix to it that also means together. So he's compounding the word, and what he's saying is that you are partnering in a partnering sort of way. 
You see, partners is the best word that we can get at in English when we're trying to unpack this idea. But what Paul is talking about is a radical new alignment of how we situate ourselves in culture, how we orient ourselves in community. And he does it by using a civil word that we are partnering in a partnering sort of way as we go about the work of the gospel. So do you see how Paul is realigning the people of Philippi? Folks who would have been minors or people associated with Rome. Folks who would have been business-savvy women or Roman slaves. Or perhaps dislocated Jews who ended up in that area because they didn't have the funds or maybe they didn't speak the right languages to head back into the city and proximity near Jerusalem. All these folks of different cultures and different histories and different tribes, Paul sees them all together as partners. And not just as partners, but partners who are doing it in a partnering sort of way. But partners in what? Well, I guess we'll have to get through the rest of the story of Philippians to really uncover what that means. But the work of the good news is how he starts it off. Partners who are somehow oriented around this message of Jesus and who choose to see the world in such a way where the one who is crucified is the one who is king. And that is such a different way to see the world. Now, before we just go down this road of utter idealism, which the church can somehow lead us into, as we get deeper into this letter, we're going to see that that Paul is going to spell out what this means on the ground. He knows that there's communities in conflict. He knows that there's folks who have been privileged for years and years, and they have no idea what it means to be in partnership with someone who's a minor or a slave. He knows that the role of women and men coming together to share in this message is not an easy one. There's no roles for that. There's no models for that in the first century. And so as he offers this community insight and discernment throughout the rest of this letter, what he's trying to do is to spell out, how do you actually do this partnering thing in a culture that has absolutely no idea where the map is and where the lines are drawn. And then Paul offers this wonderful prayer as he closes his letter, one that I know has been one of my favorite verses and maybe one that you've sent other folks as you um, write them a message of encouragement. He offers them this prayer. And what is the prayer that he offers them? that they are able to do good in the world, that they are overflowing in love and knowledge and insight, able to do good in the world and overflowing in love and knowledge and insight. Paul chooses those three words, not on accident, but on purpose. Love, 
an extension of what it means to follow in the gospel, but knowledge, he's using the word there for science. How have we come to a point where we see the work of science being over and against the work of the gospel? That is not what Paul is writing in his letter here today. And his last word, insight. This is a word that captures both the scientific and the gut. And it means to make the best call that you can in the situation that you're in. To take into consideration the context and everything that you know. And to make the best call that you can in that situation. So Paul is gathering up all of these words in his prayer. And then he says that at the end of it, that you will be pure and blameless. Now keep in mind again that these aren't religious words for Paul. His words for pure and blameless means sincere and not bringing offense. In other words, that you will be able to enter into your cultural dialogue in a meaningful and sincere and authentic way. That's his prayer for this community. That's his small business mission statement, if we were to think of it differently, as he uses these civil words to help us come around this idea. So Paul in this prayer sets up a big giant space to be used by the church and in Philippi for them to realign themselves as human beings. It's another reformation of sorts. I want to close with a quote from Martin Luther, which I actually have written down here, but um, it comes from a 1520 document that Luther had written when he appeals to the ruling class to begin to see themselves differently, specifically in the place of Germany. And this is after the theses have been presented, but before the Reformation, as we know it, had really taken shape within Germany and over and across the rest of Europe. And when Luther begins to appeal to the ruling class, he's asking in some ways for the same realignment that we see happening in the first century. Because, see, the church and the state had become totally separate. Totally separate. There was no bridge or connect between those two at all, unless you were to set foot in a church or a monastery or any other thing that was governed by the church. And so when Luther is talking to his people, what he says is this, and he appeals to them. A shoemaker, a smith, a farmer... Each has his manual occupation and work, and yet, at the same time, all are eligible to act as priests and as bishops. Now, over the next ten weeks, we are going to unpack just how radical Luther was in the statement that he makes, somehow captured in that 1520 document. But what Luther is trying to do is to somehow break into the alignments that had happened within Germany and get folks to see that the gospel realigns us. It's just what it does. 
And somewhere along the way, they had lost that between Philippi and 16th century Saxony. Luther had to go back to the source. We have to go back to the source. And Paul calls the Philippian church back to the source. And as we read these words for us here today, we are called again back to the source. Friends, Reformation is not new. It is part of the process of becoming a new people that is made in the image of God and commissioned by the Holy Spirit so that we might partner in a partnering way around the good news of the gospel. Let us return to the source and let us pray. Lord, for these words, we give you thanks. We ask that in our own lives that we would be renewed and reinvigorated by the fact that we are called back to the source. Send us there and renew us in that space by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Amen.